This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Jadmus Sulongkomer, the host of this channel. And today I'm here with Professor David Morgan to talk about his book, The Thing About Religion, an introduction to the material study of religion. Now, I believe uh, this book is fascinating in a sense, and specifically for me, and I'm sure it will be fascinating to the listeners as well who are interested in the area of the area of religious study and the study of religion in uh, particular as to what the material aspect of religion has to say about religion and the significance of it and what the materiality aspect of religion can bring into the study of religion. And I believe this book really explores that aspects uh, in depth. And I believe that this book will be really of help and the conversation also will be really of help to people who are working on the area of religion and wants to look at the aspect of materiality and also at the same time try to bring about a new way of trying to understand and think about the material aspect of religion. So I believe that today's conversation will be helpful to the listeners in that way and also will be able to explore the book uh, together with the author himself here. So let me straight away go to the author, um, Professor David Morgan. And Professor Morgan, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Well, I teach at Duke University and um, my... uh, Doctoral training was originally in art history. Uh, I did a lot of work uh, in religion, religious studies at the University of Chicago, where I was a student. Um, And uh, so I've always been very interested in the visual and material characteristics of objects and artifacts and particularly images and uh, uh, became especially interested in their uh, reception and display and who looks at them and why. That's guided much of my career. Oh yeah, that's um, that's quite interesting. So you have um, explored this area of materiality of religion, and uh, I mean you have explored this aspect in uh, many of your works. But also at the same time, uh, you have also come about uh, with this book as an introduction to the material. Stu- I mean the material study of religion. So um, you know how did this book come came about uh, in terms of your scholarly work and in terms of the vision of this book itself. Well, I had noticed in teaching over the years that uh, many graduate students, PhD students and master's students were very interested in the materiality of religions, uh, but they didn't have much training on in material analysis. How do you do it? Uh, that is to say, how to look at objects and think about them in terms of their particularly material characteristics. Um, the, the tendency is always to turn objects and spaces into texts, to, to decode them for their content value and to ignore their material 
presence. Uh, so I wanted to create a book that would um, speak directly to students about method, about dealing with objects and spaces and things uh, in a way so that they could treat those as evidence and not simply as something that needed to be converted into text. And that's what this book was designed to do. Oh, yeah. I think um, in that sense, I believe uh, this book has really beautifully done that aspect. So let's just straight away go into the contents of the book itself. And I think as you have done in the book, I think we will explore the book accordingly. I think uh, one of the very first thing that uh, that you have explored in this book is also about the very conceptual framework or trying to uh, conceptualize this aspect of what is a thing. And I think trying to understand this and trying to in encapsulate this uh, is something I, I believe uh, is, is very important in trying to understand the materiality of uh, or the material aspect of religion. So uh, can you can you say something about this one? Well, the importance of asking such a basic question like that is the, is to uh, challenge the dominance of a certain concept of mind, uh, which says uh, in the classical uh, uh, religious as well as philosophical sense that uh, the human mind is a kind of sovereign subject. It's a, con a consciousness that is above and outside of everything. And that means that things are something the mind appropriates and does with and assigns meaning to. Um, and things in themselves then are passive or blank, really. Uh, and they need to have a human mind to have significance or salience or uh, meaning of any kind. Um, and uh, this is what I want to uh, challenge uh, by, by, like many others, I didn't invent this idea, uh, explore thing as something more uh, uh, recalcitrant, that is more resistant. It pushes back. It requires human beings to engage it. And this breaks down the kind of dualist mentality of mind versus matter and sees human beings themselves as participating in the construction of meaning, not the uni unilateral authors of it. Mm, yeah, yeah. I think um, that's, that also goes into uh, the very aspect, also uh, the one that you look and do very the aspect of engendered matter. And I think this matter, I mean, the question that I want to ask is also um, the question that how does matter gets engendered or what are these engendered matters in that sense? Well, uh, the, the framework I'm using there, I, I've learned a lot from uh, people like uh, Latour and others who are interested in thinking about uh, breaking down the human being and unfolding, you might say, unfolding the human being into the larger world around it so that we're part of webs or networks, uh, assemblages uh, that emerge and then fade away and come in and out. Um, and we participate in things. We, you know, we're not, uh, the, as I said, the unilateral operator here, but we, we plug into our, our senses, our, our ways of interfacing with the world around us. We become part of these interactive webs. And um, things, uh, you know, based on human neurology, though, we, we like to, uh, we're very fond of 
addressing the whole network through a single node. So we privilege neurologically uh, a, a single access, which I call a focal object. You know, that's the thing that that tends to be our portal for access to the web and all of the distant components that belong to that particular network. So we, we tend to, f- to use an old fashioned word, we fetishize that access. We make it very important, invest intense meaning in it. And the model here that we use so often is the human face. The human face is a kind of complex interfacial node where we communicate with one another human beings and many other mammals uh, are very fond of, of uh, uh, the face, particularly the eyes, you know, that that's the access to, as the tradition says, the soul. And uh, so these, that, that tends to enchant that piece of matter. It tends to invest in great importance in it. And I think that's what uh, enchantment means for me. Um, you know, these things appear to have souls in them. Um, and uh, that's because we pay so much attention to them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that uh, that's actually quite interesting. And so uh, this is where I think when you talk about the aspect of what is a thing and what is an engendered matter, and obviously the question of um, agency um, agency also comes in. And also you, you, talk about, you talk about the different forms of agency in this. And so... In terms of the materiality, the material aspect of religion, how do we understand agency or what is the what is an agency and how what are the forms of agency that we can see? Yeah. Well, this is this is crucial because if you uh, uh, if we're able to recognize the agency of things, that's the first step uh, away from a dualist uh, approach and recognizing that things push back they act on us um, through their physical characteristics and the way that they uh, engage our senses, our bodies. And uh, recognizing that uh, then helps break down uh, the self into a process, an interactive process. And it helps, it brings into um, visibility the, 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 the way that things are enfolded into their, their environments and how they interact with, uh, with human beings in particular. If you're talking about religion, you're, you're talking about human beings. Uh, and uh, so agency is critical, I think. It's, um, it's how uh, the world acts on us uh, and we respond and religions can be understood in many ways, one way is through this kind of intense interactivity uh, of uh, giving and receiving and, and uh, engaging and uh, failure and success. All these are, are different forms of interaction with things. Yeah, and it's, I mean, let me get to the point where you mentioned about the, work, the world acts on us. And I, I think, so, so what is the processes as to how the world acts on us? Obviously, mm, we talk about um, objects, or we may talk about the rituals, or, or, or whatever. Not so. In a in a sense, the question is also about. I mean, how does this agency work? How does this world act on us? And how do we, as human beings, you know, uh, find that bridge of uh, the world acting on us, and us also incorporating ourselves in the uh, in this process? 
Well, I identified six uh, ways that are readily apparent when you start um, looking at things. I don't think this may not be a, I don't mean this as an exhaustive list, but it's six ways in which uh, things and spaces and, and other kinds of uh, physical realities uh, seem to exert agency. Um, uh, and this, this involves often the human uh, uh, interaction. So, uh, I mean, a very familiar form is to imagine that a thing can uh, act on us heal us, encourage us, punish us, etc., because a, a supernatural person has endowed it or force has endowed it with that, that agency, that power to act. Uh, another common one is um, uh, human beings uh, consecrate objects or things uh, ritually, and that transforms them in some sense. It gives them uh, power to act. Uh, our objects um, often seem to act on us or act on us by virtue of the way they look. Um, they resemble something we may know, and that, that gives them uh, a kind of uh, power. Um, and then there are others. Uh, objects possess power, are often understood to exist, uh, Ex, uh, exert power intrinsically by virtue of their uh, internal characteristics. Uh, or objects, uh, this is one of the most common, they, uh, they're like tools. Um, the, the tool transforms the hand and the arm into something it, by itself it's not. I can do things with a hammer or a tool, any other tool, that I cannot do with my bare hands. So I become, in some sense, the tool, or it, it, it joins my being, and, and it's a kind of synthesized reality that acts then. It, it, uh, uh, it expands my agency, in some sense. Um, and then finally, uh, uh, this is important for the study of the arts, whether it's dance or painting or uh, any, any of the arts. Um, Objects move us because of the way they're made or the materials they're made from. We, there's a kind of aesthetic engagement with things. Uh, they touch us. They make us sad. They make us angry. They seduce us. Uh, this power of the artistic medium to act on us uh, is important to consider because people, human beings, make things, uh, beautiful things, ugly things, precisely to enhance uh, these effects. Uh, so uh, all of these are ways of understanding that the world is more than we expect, more than we, uh, uh, more than it is in our unilateral power. And that's what I think all, all, all of these enchant the world in some sense. They give it a, uh, a special power to move us, uh, to achieve cultural work, uh, work that we can't do by ourselves. So moving on, you talk about theories of religion. And I think coming to this aspect of trying to see and understand the theories of religion from a uh, uh, you know, material study of religion perspective, I think this aspect is something uh, which is very important. And so uh, you have a chapter on how certain theories of religion dematerialize religion, right? So I think that idea is something uh, which is uh, interesting. So when we talk about theories of religion, can you give us an overview of how you know the theories of religion has developed? 
Oh, well, I mean, if, if you're talking in particular uh, how various philosophical or theological religious theories, um, theories about religion that, that dematerialize religion, is that what you're uh, asking about? I mean, that, this is one thing to consider. I mean, um, because uh, there are vast philosophical systems that have influenced uh, thought through millennia that uh, prize human agency and the human mind, human understanding above all else. In the classical ancient version, the idea of that humankind is the measure. We, man is the measure of value in the universe, as goes way back to the ancient Greeks and beyond. Um, I mean, the, the, you, you can understand the importance of that in some respect. You know, it, it values the human being, which which we think is important. On the other hand, it it, it can devalue everything else. Uh, in the Christian mythology mythological system, uh, God created the universe for human beings. So uh, human beings are at the top and everything else is below and everything is a kind of uh, fodder for humans to use as they see fit. This can produce ecological and does produce ecological disasters. And uh, I think what we're trying to recover in you know, recent developments like the new materialism and others is, a, is a, a reorientation to recognize the power and value and, and autonomy in some sense and a, various kinds of agencies of, of the natural world. Uh, and, and to resituate human beings from being at the top of it at the apex to being participants within it. You know, we're shaped by our environments, we participate, and we have a kind of a deep responsibility to make sure the world uh, works, continues, uh, and, and we can find a, a constructive place within it. Uh, so this this approach uh, uh, that I'm saying is, is, is pushing against a, a, a very old tendency to regard thought as the highest expression of the human being, thought in the sense of rational cognition, uh, as, as what joins us with the divine, you know, in the Platonic scheme of things. And uh, to say, well, yeah, but matter and bodies matter no less. They're equally as important, aren't they? And they weren't. In, in, the, in, in the Platonic ideal, the body, Socrates talked about it as perishable rubbish and uh, matter was inanimate and passive and received the impress of thought. Um, all of that raises uh, thought and language far above everything else and sees it as what's divine in the human being. And uh, while no doubt thought and <laughs> language are a fundamental aspect of our being as human beings, it's not all there is. And, and somehow we need to understand in a much more complex way how uh, human beings are uh, more than just ideas and, and language. So both theologically and philosophically, those tra that tradition uh, tends to dematerialize religion and focus on beliefs and philosophical ideas within religious systems of belief, and to just basically ignore the body as a kind of a minor problem or an annoying problem. And, uh, and 
that's you know that's a big uh, problem I think for anybody who wants to see religious behavior in a much more robust way and think about food, think about clothing, think about spaces and the built environment, think about objects of all kinds and images and uh, all the things that are fundamental to religious practices. Yeah. I mean, to kind of push uh, forward, um, I mean, what you have uh, said in the book and w- what you are uh, proposing now is, so what is the value of uh, philosophical thought in that sense? For example, uh, when we do philosophy, uh, we do so much of abstraction, right? So these abstract thoughts are something which might not be in sync with uh, the reality or you know our practices and beliefs and all but then some of these concepts are very much detached from the everyday reality as um, we are so uh, somehow these uh, concepts are some things which obviously as humans we can come up with and i think that is an significant aspect of what a human person is so at least uh, people coming from the philosophical philosophy background might argue as to the usage or the importance of these philosophical thoughts and you know how, how might it works. So in your mind, how does philosophy kind of uh, chip in and work in that sense? Well, it remains, uh, I mean, extremely important. It's, it's not, I, I wouldn't want to be understood to say you can only do the material culture of religion if you abandon philosophy and theology and uh, more formal systems of thought. I mean, those are essential tools. And so much uh, religious tradition is invested in philosophical systems and in theological uh, conceptions of the cosmos. So we, we have to pay attention to that. What we're, what we're really looking for is, uh, how is how are mind and matter part of the same thing rather than split them? And uh, think about language and ideas and uh, philosophical systems and cosmologies as deeply invested in uh, space and matter and uh, dress and and the uh, the variety of bodily practices and rituals that human beings engage in. I don't think that's hard to do. It's, it's uh, what I want to avoid is the either or, you know, I, 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 it's, it's how do we integrate thought and practice uh, in understanding religion? If we can, then I think we're, we're really much closer to, religion on the ground, how it actually happens. Yes, and I think one of the proposals here is also that our mind is uh, entangled with the material world. And I think that is where the aspect of, as you have mentioned, the aspect of new materialism comes in. So can you elaborate something more on this aspect of new materialism? Well, it's a, it's been a development uh, that's not unprecedented, but it's come to the fore in the last 20 or 30 years in, in, uh, in the humanities. Um, and it's, it's had a, a, a very important uh, impact, I think, in helping uh, dislodge the sovereign consciousness uh, model of the human being and, and to uh, recognize the, uh, the uh, place and importance of everything from the weather to catastrophic events to microbes. And, uh, you know, we are the human, if you just look at what the human body is consists of, it's, uh, it's a integrated system of hundreds and maybe thousands of life forms. Our, our guts are full of these microbes. We, we are not us without all of those things. And it's a human being as a complex dance of life forms. 
Um, and illness can be understood as when those life forms get out of balance, you know, when you don't have the right bacteria or you have too much of a certain bacteria, uh, et cetera, that, that this causes that imbalance is what is ill health. And, uh, you know, recognizing the uh, richness of the world around us transforms us. And I think the, uh, the new materialism has really uh, taken this very, very seriously. And there's obviously political dimensions to this when you think about, you know, ecology as a, a kind of a new framework for understanding the human being. And for understanding human responsibilities, not just to humans, but to other animals and to the world around us. Um, and, uh, you know, and this has co- probably come to the fore, I think, in what's called the Anthropocene, this, the, uh, where we recognize the, in a sense, disproportionate impact of the human species on this very fragile ecological system in which we live. Uh, I think the new materialism has really tried to recenter the human being in this planet, you know, to understand our 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 participation in the life of this planet, and 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 as a result, has redefined the human being in a fundamental way. Religion scholars are are very interested in this because it 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 uh, helps us rediscover uh, the human actor and the and and the agency of everything that actor encounters. Uh, in the natural world, uh, so it's a, it's a, you know it, it's it's I mean, there are very, very different versions of this and some, uh, but I, I think you know, overall it can be a way of energizing religious studies. Yeah. So uh, you have a chapter on the title of the chapter also is specifically what is the material study of religion, right? So let me just put that chapter uh, the question of the chapter has a question to you now that what is the material study of religion <laughs> can you give a precise response to that one yeah yeah i think it it it, it for me and my work it's it, it begins with uh, recognizing embodiment as a process human beings are uh, uh, born with incomplete bodies you know we need to grow but one of the most fundamental things is we need to learn our place uh, in our domestic worlds and in our social worlds through the education and formation of the body. Uh, as Marcel most described many, many years ago, we, we need to learn the techniques of the body. How do, you, how do you come to be in this thing, this thing, the human body? And it's plastic. It learns and it changes and it, uh, uh, we're, we're really dependent. We're, we're in some sense existentially incomplete. Our, our bodies are, uh, they're not hammers, they're not drills, they're not wrenches. We have to craft those tools to extend the body, uh, to reinvent the body in some way. So I think the, the basic insight is that we are... Uh, not a walking brain, a floating brain. We are enfleshed. Uh, all of our senses are enfleshed and uh, our engagement with the world around us uh, is fundamentally embodied. So we have to track that out and understand. Uh, once we do, we can start to understand, I think, why people pray to images, why they carry objects with them, why they have to go to a certain space to worship, um, why certain parts of nature are holier than others. Uh, we can s- understand the deep connections 
to objects and places and, uh, you know, various kinds of physical formations of social worlds. Uh, and that these are not incidental. These are not neutral background for religions. They are a fundamental part of making religion happen. Uh, I think that's the key issue in the material study of religion, that we take these things seriously because they wouldn't happen otherwise. When people, I, I've watched a lot of people pray and they, you watch an adult pray, sometimes they get down on their knees and they fold their hands and they look very much like uh, a two-year-old or a three-year-old praying. And that's because that's when they learn to pray. So the body is shaped over time and, and the body is fundamental to the practice. Uh, people bow their heads. Why do they bow their heads when they pray? Because that's the way they were taught to expect that the saint or the God hears them through this demeanor. They have to present themselves bodily to the sacred other um, to shape their relationship to that other. So the body is not incidental. It's the fundamental aspect of religion, uh, of the reality that religion uh, holds dear. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. Yeah, and I think moving on to be specific about, you know, the materiality of religion. So you have a chapter on how religion happens materially. And and you pick out uh, seven seven aspects to discuss um, discuss on it. And also, you also say that uh, there are many more aspects that could be explored, right? And one of the aspects uh, which um, I would like to have seen explored is the aspect of soundscape. I think soundscape is something, I don't know, it's personally something uh, which is of uh, interest to me. So uh, before coming to soundscape, right, um, the seven aspects that you have discussed, can you give a brief highlight on the aspects that you have discussed in this chapter? Sure. I mean, I start with the one I was just talking about, body work, I call it. Um, this, is, this is critical. The body itself is a powerful uh, element in religious life. Um, I'm thinking particularly of ornamentation. You think of the importance, the ancient importance of tattooing, for instance, piercing the skin, scarification to mod modify the surface of the body, uh, using various kinds of objects to... Um, shape the body. The body is seen as a kind of plastic uh, medium that needs to be adapted to social status, social rank, and to gender or sexual characteristics, uh, identities uh, that make it participate in the, the social world of a people. Um, healing. I mean, one of the most fundamental functions of religions is 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 to provide healing, whether it's spiritual healing or, or physical healing or both uh, as virtually identical. Um, and all of these things, uh, you know, activate the body. Consider it not just a, a blank canvas, but as something that by, by changing the body, you change the self, the soul, the, the, the person's social relations. Um, then I looked at, uh, if, if, if the first one looks on the outside of the body, the surface of the body, the next thing to consider is the inside of the body, uh, which is 
very difficult to study uh, for those of us who have not had medical training. Uh, but uh, ingestion, you know, taking things into the body, the, the task of eating, tasting, um, the use of pharmacological agents, uh, all of this belongs very much to the study of religion. Um, and we need, uh, I, I think it would be wonderful if uh, people trained in, in, in medical studies became uh, religion scholars. I know some who've done this and it's, they have a lot to offer because the history of healing and uh, pharmacology is so important for the understanding of, of religions. Um, and, but so yes, this is one more way of taking the body much more seriously than was often the case before. Uh, I'm picking up something from Foucault and others in the, uh, the role of punishment, another aspect of the body, punishing the body as a form of social control. And we see this uh, in monasteries, in, in, we see it in the public square, the history of, uh, of uh, the auto de fe, the Inquisition, um, orchestrating social events that for executions, for instance, of heretics. Um, all of these kinds of practices exert the punishment on the body for its broader social uh, impact. Um, and religions have, have, have exploited this forever. Um, I have a sec another one called Facing the Sacred, and this is the, the power of the human face uh, as one of the most important zones for, human, for, the homo, for homo sapiens. Uh, the face is charged with meaning and power. So understanding portraiture, understanding modifying the face, the role of facial expression, uh, all very critical uh, imaging ideology, uh, the importance of showing social rank and the power of sculpture, images, um, temples where priests present themselves or leaders present themselves to the people, um, to study the very, very close relationship between religion and the state, religion and power is, uh, I think, something that material culture studies can material study of religion can contribute to in an important way. Um, and then, um, uh, two, two final ones I'll just mention quickly. It, it seems to me we can understand a lot about religion. If we look at it as a, 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 a sacred exchange, there are kind of economies that come into being, uh, through barter, through trade, through gifting, all of these are social practices of exchange that uh, become a kind of social anatomy. They, they uh, provide uh, the means of transaction and relationships and ongoing relationships. We need to understand those as material processes. Uh, so I've tried to sketch that out. And then finally, I'm really interested in uh, what I call uh, uh, harvesting purpose from chance. Chance is one of the most fundamental characteristics of the universe. And I don't think religious scholars have begun to understand fully what that means for religion. Managing chance is something we do in so many different ways. Uh, and divination, for instance, is, is a, uh, one of the most common features of religions around the world and over time. And it is a way of, of uh, harvesting purpose from chance, you know, turning the randomness of events 
into some kind of messaging or meaning uh, that uh, can benefit uh, human uh, human beings. So those are, uh, and I'm, I'm thinking about dice and tea leaves and all kinds of tarot cards. These are all material systems for interpreting events. Uh, and uh, the, there's a very, very long list. And we, you know, they are material processes that uh, can tell us a lot about how people put their worlds together uh, in the face of randomness, random events. Yeah, I think these seven aspects that you have um, discussed in this chapter is fascinating in itself. And you also, as I've said, you also mentioned about many aspects that could be mentioned. And when you talk about uh, harvesting purpose from chance, I think this... Uh, this is something a fascinating aspect actually as you have mentioned it now i think it it, it really struck me uh, personally also i mean uh, in for my research work uh, in my research work right but then i've never thought about it in terms of uh, harvesting purpose from chance but then i've thought about it in different uh, way but i think this will open up uh, certain new ways of trying to understand uh, this aspect of divination in that sense i think that's something which is quite fascinating yeah so i, I want you to comment something on the aspect of Soundscape. Now, I, I, I mean, you haven't dealt uh, about soundscape in in this uh, chapter, but uh, I'm sure you can give some comments because I carried out fieldwork uh, in my on my own communities, and I come from a Protestant Baptist dominated place, right? And with um, I mean, when you talk about uh, objects and all, and you know the the power in object and all of those things, I mean, the Baptist denomination really detests this aspect of uh, objects having power and using objects and all of those aspects. But then one of the aspect is uh, the I mean, which I've seen personally in my field work and in my research is the aspect of soundscape. Whether it may be preaching, I mean, someone preaches, standing up and preaching. Whether it may be a congregational prayer, you know, it has a sense something that gives to you but also at the same time also about the, the beats of certain instrument and the singing together and has so much of uh, impact and significance in the particular context that I'm working on so I wanted you to comment something on the aspect of soundscape yeah when I drafted the book I had uh, I had uh, soundscape as one of the it was eighth or ninth and then I had landscape because I was going to play off landscape and soundscape <laughs> the chapter got, was uh, way too long, so I had to make some uncomfortable choices. Uh, I also had a long section on gender, which in gender and sexuality, which is, I mean, such a profoundly embodied material component and is so important. So, yeah, it, it's a it's a pity one could write an entire book just on, you know, enumerating the importance of of so many different characteristics. And I uh, I indicated that this is not an exhaustive list because I know people are going to say, well, how come he didn't write about this? You know, that's just, that's just a part of the process. But um, soundscape is, uh, is, is really uh, exciting because um, uh, well, for, for one reason, as you state, there are religious subcultures, which are very fond of uh, avoiding certain things. They don't want to be associated with images. You mentioned uh, conservative Protestant, uh, and you could look at uh, certain versions of Islam and certain versions of Judaism, certain versions of Buddhism. They just, they just avoid those kinds of objects because they feel they are deceptive or uh, too material or too uh, inappropriate for their religious practices. Um, interestingly, though, they 
always have some some material dimension. And and, and you, if you, for instance, Protestants, they have the Bible. And I don't know about the Baptist you study, but in the United States, Baptists often they 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 have that Bible in their hands and they shake it when they preach and they they're very fond of opening it. For instance, they open it and point to a verse, and that's a form of divination. So they're using the Bible as a random generator to uh, channel God's will into their lives. You know that's uh, and you know so that's uh, one way in which the material thing is still important. Uh, they don't have images often, but they do have that, that Bible. They also have, as you point out, their spaces. And they practice song and sometimes music like organ or piano, guitar, uh, but sometimes it's just voice. And they become can become very, very good at uh, uh, choral harmony, uh, and uh, producing a sense of, it can be for some very ecstatic. I mean, they are deeply moved by the sound in the space. And if you look at the spaces they use, they often choose very, very undecorated interior spaces so they, get, they can maximize the effect of sound waves bouncing off of plain walls to enhance the volume or the depth of the, of the sound they're producing. So they produce the sound, but then the sound comes back and affects them. And, that's, uh, and, they, and they create these special places where this happens. Uh, that's part of the soundscape uh, that they create and that in turn creates them. So understanding this, is, this kind of dialectical dimension is important. Um, and it's not often always the words per se, but it's the sounds that move them. Uh, so, uh, certainly, you know, importantly connected to content, but um, it's also the sound quality. Just like, you know, if we talk about images, it's the, the color and the texture uh, and the, of the imagery that influences as well as the subject matter. So part of the material study of religion is uh, not to, not to focus exclusively on content or semantics, but also the material conditions for producing value or salience. And I think soundscape is a is a great way to do that. The other thing I like about soundscape, uh, as it's been studied in, over the past twenty or thirty years, is uh, it it spills out of the religious setting, the temple or the church or wherever into the world around and people create different soundscapes. So you can follow people. There's the domestic soundscape. There's the workspace. There's the public square. There's the temple. Uh, all of these uh, have characteristic sounds and uh, can be understood uh, to uh, uh, produce certain kinds of human behavior or certain kinds of attitudes, certain ranges of feeling. Yeah, I think exploring this skepsis uh, is something, soundscapes and landscape is something uh, which is quite really fascinating in terms of understanding the material aspect of religion. And uh, obviously, this is something out of what you have written in this chapter. But as you have also said that you have written on this, but you have the cut down. So I like you to ex see, uh, explore these aspects in some other works. <laughs> That'll be really interesting, actually. I did have, I have, I do have a chapter in uh, the embodied eye. Uh, you might look at it. It came out in 2010, I think. And that, that has a chapter on Protestant worship spaces and, and the sound 
the soundscape and the the kinds of spaces they choose for for worship. Oh yes, that that'll be fascinating. Yeah, that would be great. I'll have a look at it. So um, moving on, I think um, now. There is a chapter on how you talk about the power of objects. Now, here, I think you kind of um, focuses on Christianity and also you fo- focus um, on Moses also. So, I mean, can you tell us something about the um, aspect of one in Christianity? I mean, how the, how, how, what role did it play and, you know, how, how did it work in Christianity? The one, yeah. That I, 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 one could write on any number of different objects as power objects, the object. The wand is very interesting to me because it it occurs across many, many, many different cultures and over a considerable amount of time. The wand is an object that I found especially important because one holds it in the hand and then points with it or gestures with it. It's it's close, cousin, you might say, is the scepter. Uh, that kings or rulers use. Uh, it's a sign of power, but is also an extension of the body. It's one of these basic tools that can direct the will. And that's often how the wand is used to, to, uh, to uh, aim the will or the intention. Uh, and somehow the, having the wand in the hand enables this better. It, 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 it's, it's, uh, it enhances human action, uh, like any tool, I suppose. So I started with the ancient world uh, and and, uh, looked at a variety of cultures, uh, but then focused especially on um, uh, the wand of Moses, which is easily overlooked. But it really, uh, throughout his story, he has a wand. And it's not just a staff. It's actually described as uh, something shorter, some kind of wand and uh, it's it, it becomes the not just the symbol of his authority uh, but it becomes the uh, the means by which he enacts God's will God's direction for the uh, liberation of the Israelites and it, it it goes on the road with Moses and Aaron his brother also has a wand. Um, and then there's a, a long sort of uh, interesting folklore about what happens to that wand after Moses died. Uh, it's, uh, tradition says, placed in the Ark of the Covenant, so it's intimately associated with that special place where the tablets of the law are, uh, which this is the throne seat of God when he descends to the tabernacle to speak. So it's really at the crux of uh, Jewish life, the life of the Israelites. So it's a very, very powerful object. And then uh, it's shown in the history of both Jewish and Christian art um, uh, up until the present. I mean, I I found depictions of wands uh, on and on and on, Uh, and probably has a lot to do with the rise of the representation of the wand in neo-paganism. uh, there, the the history of neo-paganism is, is is a little sketchy, but it's not always clear when they incorporated wands. But it's uh, it is clear it starts uh, very much in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, so there's this intertwining of uh, practices, uh, and uh, I was just fascinated to see this. And the the main argument of the chapter is 
how do we understand this object? Do is in, in Harry Potter, the wands have magical elements inserted inside of them, special feathers or dragon teeth or whatever. But in the history of wands from the ancient world, uh, from the Oracle at Delphi, clear up to um, Jewish and Christian, uh, particularly Christian in, in, in the modern era, there is nothing inside the wand. It's the object itself. So I wanted to understand how how can this object have power? If it doesn't have a soul itself, if it doesn't have you know some inherent power, how do we understand its power? How does it exert effects? And that's where I found the network theory of actor network theory helpful uh, to understand the wand as connecting the user to a web of, uh, of uh, relationships that... Uh, uh, gives this wand power. This chapter, again, itself is uh, fascinating in that sense because you talk about um, religion and time here. And this is where you bring the example of the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris. And um, you you say that every ancient structure is riddled with the marks of time. And this is where you talk about object in time where contestation happens, like a lot of contestation happens, uh, whether it be political, social, cultural, and all of those aspects. So I think this chapter um, I have seen is uh, very fascinating. So can you elaborate uh, something on this very aspect of religion and time that you talk about? Yeah, we we are creatures of time. It's the most fundamental uh, quality about us. We have all kinds of ways of ignoring time, masking time, denying time, uh, you know, pretending it's not affecting us. Uh, but uh, we are fundamentally temporal. That's the uh, character of our existence. And I, uh, it's also the characteristic of the material world we live in. And, and much of human culture is devoted to repair or reforming, restructuring, renewing the, the material world. Uh, and Notre Dame, the Cathedral of Notre Dame was... Uh, a great example of this, because I, I start before it was built, try to go back to the Celtic inhabitants and then the Romans. And the site of the isle, uh, the island in the Seine, um, you know, is it was a, a very important piece of real estate for material reasons. It was easier to protect. Uh, you have water. Uh, you had uh, uh, they used local stone to construct there. Um, and it became then the site for this uh, a, a series of, of religious structures. Um, and uh, the cathedral itself in the 12th century, uh, but it wasn't done when the cathedral was done. It, 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 in a sense, the, 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 the building is never done. And, and I think that was struck, what struck me most dramatically about this was the fire a few years ago. Um, this, uh, I remember on the day it happened, I watched it on social media. I was so shocked because I'd been there to visit it years ago and it meant a lot to me as an object. It's such a beautiful cathedral, but it made me realize, you know, this is the history of that object. It's always undergoing change. It's, we, we like to lock it into our minds as this enduring icon of permanence, but it's not, it's not that at all. And neither are we, we are always changing. So, you know, there's a, important uh, element of the study of religion is to recognize the effects of time and how human beings materially negotiate the passage of time. We're missing something about religion if we don't 
recognize this. And that cathedral and the extensive uh, changes it has undergone in, in the inside and on the outside over time uh, were a kind of laboratory for me to, to make this point. Uh, Would you like to readdress something or highlight something which uh, I haven't or I have failed to highlight in the conversation here? Well, just a, a brief mention on the, the final chapter that we didn't get to talk about was tr- tracking objects acquired by missionaries in the South Pacific and, and, then, and then following them to uh, museums in Boston and London. Uh, these are, it's the, li- the cultural biography of, of, of artifacts, which is, and at each place, uh, they acquired different languages, different taxonomies for what they were, what they were called. Uh, so uh, that was a chapter in which I could look at the intimate relationship between nomenclature and uh, object within uh, evolving cultural settings. It was, uh, it's uh, an important, you know, it comes back to our earlier point about the relationship between things and language. It's very important uh, language in, in organizing the world around us. And that was a, uh, Uh, something I found extremely uh, interesting. Yeah, uh, thank you for highlighting that one. I think that uh, question has, has kept me to, I have written it down here, I think, um, but I think, thank you for pointing out uh, that one, the, the aspect of uh, words and agents in terms of the uh, material, material aspect that you discuss about in this chapter. I think uh, this has been a fascinating conversation, Professor Morgan. And so is there any projects that you are currently working on or is there any uh, thing that is coming up? Yeah. Yeah. My, my current book project is um, uh, I'm writing a book on the visual culture of revelation, not just the book in the Bible, but uh, revelation as a fundamental feature in many different religions. How, what role do images play in um, depicting revelation, but also in shaping dreams and visions that become revelatory. So Uh, it's a big project, but I'm just getting started. But I'm really looking forward to it. That's that's such a that's such a fascinating project. I mean, I would love to uh, you know <laughs> have another conversation on that project of yours. That's such fascinating thing. Yeah, yeah. So, um, if anyone would like to reach out to you regarding this book, how can they reach out to you? Oh, just email at Duke uh, David. Uh, dot morgan at duke.edu uh, and it's a uh, for sale at the university of north carolina press uh, they can just google that and uh, find it there or amazon yeah thank you so much professor morgan for being here in new books now ryan thank you for such a wonderful conversation yeah. right. it was my pleasure thank you